So, all right, we're getting back on track here. So what I'm doing today is that class that disappeared on procreation versus reproduction is reappearing today uh, because it, it deals with a lot of the principles that I would have hoped we would have talked about entering into the last several lessons. So a lot of it will, you will have already kind of heard, but what I'm trying to do instead of applying it to specific cases of IVF or gestational surrogacy, we're going to look at more specific cases in the coming weeks. Apart from what we've already looked at, I want to look at the guiding principles, uh, particularly from a theological and a philosophical perspective. Um, so excuse me if a lot of this is repetitive, but it is important stuff. So we're going sort of back to the beginning of life section, focusing on the church's teaching on procreation, uh, the, the generation of new human life. And the church has had a lot to say about this. Uh, and the church, we believe, has every right to talk about this because we're talking about uh, the dignity of human life. We're talking about the dignity and the reverence of sexuality. We discussed that last semester. And so the church has a right, not necessarily to dictate what is good science, but to help to form consciences. And the two documents in the modern era that have been the most influential in this are the ones you should have read, Donum Vitae in 87 and Dignitatis Personae in 2008. Dignitatis Personae just sort of goes a little bit more in depth of what Donum Vitae says, but still is important. I'm going to reference them in random places, but I think the basic ideas, if you've read them and you have some common sense, as most of you in here at least do, if not all, um, should be able to figure it out. So these documents lay out the church's teaching on questions regarding advances in biomedicine, particularly in the realm of reproduction and procreation, specifically dealing with the status of the embryo and in vitro fertilization. Um, as I said, they both deal with the same issues, but 20 years later, um, or 30 years later actually, uh, or 20 years later, I got it right, we're 30 now. 20 years later, uh, we have that advance of Dignitas Personae to address specific issues, uh, advances in biomedicine and technology that did not exist at the time that Donum Vitae was written. So what I want to offer today is an analysis of the basic tenets of those documents in church teaching, but to take a more philosophical perspective, um, inspired by that article by Ratzinger that I hope you read on the difference between procreation and reproduction. So it's going to be a bit more philosophical, a bit more theological. And of course, all of these questions spring from what we've already discussed at the beginning of the semester and somewhat discussed last semester. The technocratic paradigm, techne, and its impact on anthropology and ethics. And the way that these two radically divergent worldviews will lead to um, one way of seeing the human person and sexuality and life and another, sacramental versus the nihilistic. And we're going to look at it really across the lifespan over the course of the rest of our time together, but here really focusing on the beginning of life. And, and as we've talked about before, a lot of the questions we're dealing with didn't exist 100 years ago. 
But because of advances in science, technology, biomedicine, and the course of the past 50 years, we now have the power, the potential to create human life in a laboratory. Not the soul, of course, but we can create human life. It's the first time, think of it, outside of sexual union with a man and a woman that we've been able to cre create life. And as the Ratzinger article talks about, this desire that we've already always had for the homunculus, the, the, the Frankenstein's monster, to somehow create life uh, and become like gods ourselves, it's finally possible. And what's ironic, at least from my perspective, is it's like it's no big deal. Did you ever think about that? It was a big, big deal when it happened, but now eh, it's so customary. We're just going to store these million frozen embryos. Regardless of the, the moral status of the embryo, we have the ability to create new human life in a laboratory. And it's about ready to get potentially even scarier if all of a sudden we can create life by genetically engineering somatic cells into gametes and then somehow basically make from your cells an egg and a sperm one day possibly and then basically you are in a certain sense you're not cloned but you are created through the joining of these two gametes that have your same genetic material i'm not saying it's possible but this is what could potentially become in the future Again, it, it should freak us out, even though, for whatever reason, it really doesn't. We have now the power to do something that for, for centuries, for millennia, was reserved for God. And so the church teaching, when we are trying to apply the church teaching to this, is the church has already assumed, yes, well, only God can create. But all of a sudden, man can create life. So we're going to have to find some way to now apply these basic fundamental premises. The most fundamental moral principle, if you read these two documents, is the inherent dignity of the human person created in the image and likeness of God. That shouldn't be a surprise. We talked about that when we were looking at our guiding and fundamental principles. Donum Vitae spells, quote, the criteria of moral judgment as regards the applications of scientific research and technology in special, especially in relation to human life and its beginnings, all right? So what this document is gonna do is recognizing that the human person and that is created in the image and likeness of God and has a dignity, there are gonna be three criteria that the church's teaching are going, is gonna have as its foundation. Number one, the respect, defense, and promotion of man. Number two, his primary and fundamental right to life. So the first one is like, hey, man is separate from the rest of creation. We have a dignity that the dogs and the monkeys and the kittens don't have. And then finally, his dignity as a person who is endowed with a spiritual soul and with moral responsibility who is called to be at beatific communion with God. To all of these, you can sort of sum up are ways to understand the dignity of the human person. Man is the apex of creation, right to life, dignity of the person who is not just physical, res extensa, but is endowed with a soul, a soul that we know, of course, that God um, puts into the, the person. 
uh, at the moment of ensoulment. So it's important. And this is something that, you know, again, I'm assuming you've done in your anthropology, but the body, man is not just a body. It's not, we're not just res extensa. We are body and soul with an immortal spiritual dimension. Dave Arabin talks about man as that unified totality of body and soul. And as a result, science can't create the soul. But if indeed in a lab, we do create the, the material of human life, we believe that God will indeed infuse a soul into that embryonic, that human being in the embryonic stage of development. Because we've seen the way that these embryos have grown up, they have moral capacity, the church will believe that they're not like soulless zombies walking around, but they are human persons. Dignitatis Personae 6 explains how man is a unified totality. These two dimensions of life, the natural and the supernatural, allow us to better to understand better the sense in which the acts that permit a new human being to come into existence and which a man and a woman give themselves to each other are a reflection of Trinitarian love. And so in referring to this, it's, it's pointing out another criterion that is going to become important along with the dignity of the human person and all that it entails. And that is going to be the, the unit of man and woman, is that man is that composition of supernatural and natural. And we believe that it is God who ensouls. Have you all studied ensoulment any? You know, different theories of ensoulment? I mean, throughout, yeah, again, this is a debate people love to have. I am not a big fan of it. We don't really know when, what, what moment God instills the soul, but we argue for the favor that it, it is the, the, the moment of conception. At different times, well, St. Thomas said this, or Descartes said that. we got no idea. We don't know. But we are going to assume from the moment of conception that uh, it is a human being with a soul. But in practicality, I think it's sort of a moot point, just like the debate about personhood. Human beings have dignity. And even if you don't believe that the person has a soul, we still believe, because of the rational creatures, that humans have dignity. And this is something that, without a doubt, can apply to secular thinkers and also religious thinkers. So it's not a, even though we believe this, we believe we can argue um, outside of a purely uh, religious or spiritual sense. So, but the big question here is, and a lot of it is here, we're not talking about euthanasia now, we're not talking about even necessarily some process on a fully developed fetus or a fully developed human. We instead are talking about the status of the embryo. Yeah, you could probably make all kinds of different distinctions between the zygote and the embryo and on and on and on. But if you were forced to defend the, I don't know, the dignity of embryonic life, 
from different arguments that it's not a person, it's not fully human, whatever. How would you do that? Because there are plenty of arguments. Well, it's, it's not a person, it's not really human, it's only a potential human. Or even many of the arguments where have you heard, let's say that you go into a burning lab or, or there's a burning building and the bottom is a lab where there are frozen embryos and the top there's a daycare. And you could choose to, to rescue 10 embryos or five babies. What would you choose? You ever heard that argument? That, that, that old quit? What would you choose? Well, most people would say, hey, I'd choose the babies because they're cute and soft and snuggly. And then the counter argument is, well, then it just shows that you don't value embryonic life in the same way that human life is valued. What's the flaw in that? It is pretty utilitarian, but but but. Potentially, they still have the same status of of, of human. Right. What's the flaw in the argument? Uh, well, you also will have the person who will say, "I'll save the embryos." True. So why? What? What is the inherent logical flaw of the argument itself? Exactly. It's an appeal to emotion. Oh, you would save the cute little babies. Yeah, but it doesn't say whether or not the person who walks in may choose to do that because it's cuter, but it doesn't mean that it's not that it's not saying that the embryos aren't individual members of the human species. So, yeah, it's an appeal to emotion. So regardless of those individual arguments, how do you argue with someone, nope, this is an individual member of the human species? How do you do that philosophically? What do you mean? I mean, I mean that the fact is that there's uh, it's kind of the there's the same substance. The accidents, of course, are, are different, uh, right? For different stages of development. But I mean, it's the same. DNA. I mean, there's the same. We can even talk scientifically. That there's everything that you need in that embryo to create life, and life will be made. Like. If I am understanding Austin correctly, not only does he have a firm grasp of biology, but he has studied his Aristotle and his Thomas. That is the correct answer. Very good, Austin. Let's give Austin a hand. <laughs> correct. <laughs> o- on a biological level, we've talked about this. What makes a human being a human being? What is the fundamental building block that distinguishes and enables the scientist from the very moment of conception to know, oh, this is a human embryo and not an elephant embryo and not a chicken embryo. DNA. DNA. You can tell that first that that one DNA strand that is there that contains all the information that distinguishes us from other types of beings, other kinds, other species. But it, what is there, at any point of the of, of the life, which is the self-directed life of that uh, that one that one-celled individual that is a fully a human being, fully a member of the human species. There's no question if it belongs to any other species. Only people who teach like at elite organizations or on the or support Planned Parenthood would deny that. But even these days, very few of them would. They'll admit it's a human a human being. So. Is anything ever added that would be, let's say, essential? Do other cells 
outside of the case of certain types of twins, but do you ever have any other cells come in and add material to it? No. H how does that one cell grow? What is the process? Hmm? Yeah, well, mitosis or meiosis? Mitosis, huh? Yeah, no, mitosis, they separate, correct? So it's, who's, who, is it meiosis or mitosis? Yeah, that's what I thought. Meiosis is what sex cells go through. Correct, yeah. You're in the right profession, John. Appreciate it. <laughs> but regardless, it's mitosis. It separates. Nothing is ever added. Nothing is ever added. You may have certain proteins and whatnot, but there's that, for that one cell, all the cells that we have in our body continue to develop, continue to grow. From the, the, the unique DNA strand that is taken from joining the two chromosomes of the two gametes. So from the moment of conception, you have an individual member of the human species. So the second point that Austin made was, is what we see or the changes are not essential or substantial as if it would go from an embryo to a dog or an embryo to a fish. The embryo is nothing more than an accidental or, let's say, a stage or characteristic. So you could draw it out. Here is the continuum of life, and here is the one cell. And of course, after a few days, you know, let's say after 14 days, you have the primitive streak. Uh, you know, after three months, you know, and then here's nine months, and you have children, you know, five years old, 30 years old, 50 years old, whatever. It's all the same individual human being at different stages of development. Here, they're at the embryonic stage of development. Here, they're at the toddler stage of development. But it's nothing's erratic. And so it's that fundamental philosophical distinction of accidents and substance, essential characteristics and secondary characteristics. You know, young Father Bryce Sibley, who had a lot of hair and it was dark, now I have less and it's not dark. Does that mean I'm not Father? I still am. If I were to be in, in Singapore today, would I stop being Father Bryce Sibley? No, because I am still substantially who I am. These are just accidental changes. In the same way, it's the same essential being who grows and develops to these different stages of development. So even though a one cell or a four-celled embryo is not as cute and cuddly as a little bitty baby, it's no less human. It's no less human. Uh, one of the articles that I put on there is from Professor Robert George, Bobby George, called Acorns and Embryos, where he really fleshes out the uh, analogy of the acorn to the tree and the embryo to the human. I encourage you to, 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 to read that. So this argument for me has always been very, very important. I'm not referring to religion or anything, but just so that we can be on the right page here if you're discussing this with someone who, let's say, is for IVF or is for abortion, we are talking about an individual member of the human species who, as we'll see, has rights at a very early stage of development. Because... We believe if you are a human being, you have certain natural rights that come along with the very fact that you're a human being. 
the right to vote and these different things, these are all civil rights. But as a human being, because you share in a human nature, you have rights. So this is from Dave, uh, uh, Don Vitae, uh, part one. It's arranged differently. It's like chapter one, part one. From the first moment of his existence, that is to say, from the moment the zygote is formed, demands the unconditional respect that is morally due to the human being and his bodily and spiritual totality. Because he has his bodily and spiritual totality. His body's just one cell, but the soul's there too. The human being is to be respected and treated as a person for the moment of conception, and therefore from that same moment has rights as a person must be recognized, among which the first place is the inviolable right to every innocent human life, the human being to life. So if you get your rights because you're a human being, and that's a human being, it has rights. And to argue that it doesn't have rights, as our previous speakers say, sort of brings in some of the fallacies of slavery. Oh, because they're of a different color, or because of whatever arguments you make, they don't have the same rights that this other set of people do. Well, that's a flaw, because they're still human beings. They just have secondary characteristics that are different. And we, of course, know what happens when we start making these distinctions according to who can have rights and who can't have rights. So I really do think that abortion and a lot of these issues that deal with the embryos, such as IVF, will hopefully one day be seen as pretty significant um, human rights issues. Uh, Carter Sneed, and if you read the section on assisted reproduction, sort of takes that basic argument that the law is there to ensure and promote the rights of the weakest and most vulnerable. Well, is there anything weaker and more vulnerable in the human state of existence than the embryo? So if that's the case, the law has the right to protect that, has a duty to protect that, and it's failing miserably. So that's the first criterion, is the dignity of the human person, even in the, the embryonic stage of development has all the rights that a full human being does from a natural perspective. And we may look a little bit more at this when we look at abortion. But number two, for the church, there is another essential criterion for moral judgment of all these issues. What is that essential criterion? We've talked about it. We've sort of talked about it before, but we, in all the presentations, it's been alluded to, but not necessarily as directly as I will today. What is that other one that is key and foundation to these documents and Catholic bioethics uh, when it comes to the issue of procreation? Correct. Yes, that's right. Very good. No, that the way it's the way the child, the individual uh, member of the human species comes into being, not in a lab, but in the context of marital love, particularly the marital act, which, as we talked about last semester, ideally expresses that total gift of self. So dignitatis personae, number six, again, respect for 
that dignity is owed to every human being because each one carries in an indelible way his own dignity and value. The origin of human life has its authentic context in marriage and in the family, where it is generated through an act which expresses the reciprocal love between a man and a woman. Procreation, which is truly responsible vis-a-vis the child to be born, must be the fruit of marriage. And so uh, if you look at this, there are two points here. First of all, that each child ought to be conceived responsibly within the context of a loving marriage between two spouses. This highlights the, the, the gift of marriage, the, the unitive dimension of the procreative act, yes, but that it, it, the act should take place within the marital covenant. Did you ever get up? Yeah. yeah. Heterologous versus homologous, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Versus like, like I mean, this is it's still holds in a way, but it's not like it's persuasive in the sense of like, like speaking to the heart. I don't know if that makes sense. I think it does, and, and we're going to get to that in a little bit because there's a big part of how do you convince people of this. That's the big the big issue. Um, but you, we're going to get to I think the distinction. One of those distinctions you made, and the document does too, the difference between the union between two partners who are married and a partner and someone else who's not involved in that union. That's heterologous. That's another, the gamete from another, uh, another individual. So it, it's true, the unity of marriage is important, but here more specifically, and procreation. That new life ought to be brought forth within the context of the marital act, which we saw last semester is infused with sacramental and transcendental meaning. Sex is more than physical. Don Vitae, quote, spouses mutually express their personal love and the language of the body, which clearly involves both sponsal meanings and parental ones. We talked about that, the unitive and the generative meaning of the body. So the church will teach that the child ought to come, a new life ought to come into existence through the marital act, which is an expression of love and gift of self within the context of a loving marriage. We realize this doesn't always happen. It doesn't mean that the child doesn't have a dignity. It doesn't mean it's not an individual member of the human species. But as a moral criterion, this is one of the essential ones along with the dignity of the human person. In fact, as we'll see, they're sort of tied together. So creating a child in a lab or not in, the, in a normally human manner, becomes seriously morally problematic. Because it does not respect the dignity and meaning of the act, nor of marriage. But it also shows disrespect to the child. One can argue that the child has a right to be brought into the world through the loving embrace of two parents rather than as a product of technological prowess. 
Because what happens is, whether you like it or not, the child becomes the product of a technique rather than a gift that springs forth from an act of love. So, um, Don Vitae again, quote, in reality, the origin of a human person is the result of an act of giving. The one conceived must be the fruit of his parents' love. He cannot be desired or conceived as the product of an intervention of medical or biological techniques. That would be equivalent to reducing him to an object of scientific technology. It's an interesting argument. Not a, not a gift that comes from love, but you're a product that comes from the lab. No one may subject the coming of a child into the world to conditions of technical efficiency, which are to be evaluated according to the standards of control and dominion. The child has the right to be brought into life in the proper context of love and gift. And so the church argues the child does have that right. Again, donum vitae. The child has the right to be conceived, carried in the womb, brought into the world, and brought up within marriage. It is through the secure and recognized relationship to its own parents that the child can discover his own identity and achieve his own proper human development, unquote. So we're denying the child the right. So different context of the same principle. If she were to conceive outside of marriage, do they have the responsibility to get married before the child comes? Oh, not necessarily, no. No, we wouldn't say that. We would say they have the responsibility to make sure the child is cared for and provided for. If they don't get married, it is a less than ideal situation. But uh, let me tell you, oh, you had a child, like they used to say, you need to get married. In five years, you're going to be granting that annulment because it's force or fear. Um, it's not a free choice. You're doing it because I feel compelled to have, to, to, it's not a free choice to, I feel compelled to be married, even though I don't love this person, so it's not going to hold up. Most priests, if they're good, I'm not saying they wouldn't do the marriage, but they're, they're going to want to wait a little bit. So, you know, here, you know, we have a lot of rights claims that are coming up. Um, the child has the right, then we as a society have a duty to protect that right, to be brought forth in, the, in the, the normal manner and to be protected once it is brought forth, whether it's in the normal manner or not. But, but these two points, and this is the basis here before we jump into something else, become the basis of evaluating most all issues that deal with artificial reproductive technologies, ARTs. And we, we've sort of seen them played out already. The, the first one is, of course, artificial insemination, where whether it be through the normal process or the one ICSI where one sperm is sort of inserted into the egg, it's, it, it's, it's not within the context of the marital act. You know, you have the, the, the woman is somehow, the, because maybe the man's sperm can't reach the, 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 the ove, well, it's helped in that journey. But there's not a product, even though it's within the woman's body, it's not a product of um, the marital act. The technology is being used to produce that. Now, we'll talk a little bit about gift later on and these other ones that tend, some people argue, are viable. 
but I think we can make an argument that most of this is not going to be acceptable. And then, of course, in vitro fertilization, heterologous or homologous, and that's the distinction. And I guess you could say artificial insemination in the same way. Well, let's say there's a woman who can't get pregnant because her, man, her husband's sperms don't work. You can't take the semen from another man and use it because that is heterologous. It's, not only does it contradict the marital act and its integrity, but it also contradicts the unity of the man and the woman. And so with in vitro fertilization, you have the eggs that are harvested, which of course is, are not going to be, that's not considered a just thing to do. Fertilized in the Petri dish, not within the context of the marital act. Even more, it becomes abhorrent if you were using another man's sperm or another woman's eggs to be able to do that. Uh, and then from that, what do you do with all of the frozen embryos and the destruction, experimentation, genetic screening? We've talked about it a lot already, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later uh, as we kind of sort of go through what we deal with. But all of this is that underlying problem, which I know Dr. Cudahy and Dr. Caldwell addressed so beautifully, is the real problem of infertility. And I thought what they said was like, hey, let's look at infertility and go to the doctor and see what we can do to resolve this problem. Um, so a very pro-fertility uh, application. But because a woman or a man together are struggling with infertility, and believe me, you are going to encounter couples like this who are struggling. And it is a very, very big cross, particularly as they see others, their family and friends having kids. And they're putting pictures on social media and everybody's freaking out. It really is very, very painful. So the church doesn't say that we can't assist the process of fertility. You can use fertility drugs. You can use the NAPRO technology. You can use these different things. Or to remove obstacles, like having surgery, to remove endometriosis. And there are all kinds of different ways that it can be done. And I think most of the documents that I had you read explained a lot of those. But we've got to ask, is this respecting the marital act or is it just is it or is it stopping the natural completion where is it becoming not unitive and non not unitive at least and does it respect the dignity of the human person <clears throat> dignitatis personae will give three criteria for the treatment of infertility and any kind of new medical techniques these are important to know the right to life and to physical integrity of every human being from conception to natural death. We already know that. The unity of marriage, which means reciprocal respect for the right within marriage to become a father or mother only together with the other spouse. And the specifically human values of sexuality, which require that the procreation of a human person be brought about as the fruit of the conjugal act specifically the love between spouses. So again, it should be pretty clear. Is the process we're doing helping you to grow in fertility so that you can complete the act? Or that when you do complete the act, there's a greater choice of your spouse becoming pregnant, even though you are completing the act within um, using drugs or other specific tools? Yeah, we're going to look a little bit more at some of those later but it just can't be done outside of it or with the intervention of 
this sort of technology. But for y'all, let me tell you, the importance of pastoral sensitivity in this, um, I'll, I'll be honest, and I don't necessarily know how to resolve this problem. One of the days that people love to come to Mass is Mother's Day. Father's Day, or whatever. But let me tell you, they come into Mass on Mother's Day with their moms. And I'll give you two, uh, one lesson definitively that I learned, and the second one that just suggested. My old pastor, when I was growing up, used to do for Mother's Day, he would stop at the end of the Mass and like take a poll to see who was the oldest mother in the church. And she would get a little boutonniere, or not a boutonniere, a little corsage. And everybody would love it and congratulate her, and it was so sweet. Won him a lot of points. So I said, I'm going to be a good priest and do that. And it worked until the second year that I became pastor. And I realized that one of the parishes, there was this ancient woman who would come to Mass one day a year, Mother's Day, because she knew she could beat everybody. She knew there was nobody older than her. And then I started thinking, well, what's going to happen? Then, then what happens? All the other old women started getting mad and complaining to me. And I'm like, what, am I, what can I do? I saw her at the casino last weekend. She goes every week down there to, 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 to play the casino, to play those slots. And her doesn't want to come to Mass except on Mother's Day. <laughs> so I said, all right. How about this year we're going to do it? It's not the oldest one. It's the one who's got the most kids. And the ladies in the parish said, before you can't do that, she got 14 kids. <laughs> she got more than everybody. So I said, I'm done with this. Everybody, I don't care if you're old or young, you're all getting the Mother's Day blessing and the Book of Blessings. And then it ended it right there. So my suggestion, just give the Book of Blessings, Mother Day blessings. For the Father's Day, well, we used to give the boutonniere. Guess how many complaints I had from that this minute? <laughs> Nobody really cared. I mean, man, oh, look, it's that 90-year-old man. Let's give him that flower. Anyhow. <laughs> but uh, those women would compete. Oh, the men didn't care. That is probably very true. Yes, if it is a nice handle of whiskey, the men will care. That old man, he may be, he may be that old, but he's on his fourth wife. <laughs> but the honest, it's a separate issue. Yeah. The 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 important issue is though, just to let y'all know, on Mother's Day. There will be women there who cannot have children. And Mother's Day can be very difficult on them. I am not saying that you should never preach on Mother's Day. But just as when you preach on abortion, realize there are some women who've had abortions there. And it is usually very important, I think, to no matter what you say, like John Paul II does in Evangelium Vitae, talk about compassion to the mother or the woman who's had abortion. Talk, be willing to talk about the struggle of infertility. It really, really is a struggle, and to show mercy and compassion uh, on those couples. But what I want to do now is shift to sort of, I guess, more philosophical reflections. And it's language, and again, we're going to go down this potential rabbit hole, but 
I think it's important. The difference between procreation and reproduction. Now, we use the terms interchangeably, and there's really nothing wrong with using the terms interchangeably. However, there, there is a difference. Procreation, meaning to basically to create or to bring forth, and reproduction sort of has that, that, that language of technology, of becoming a product of something rather than being created. So creation versus production, um, the two ways of looking at it. As um, Gilbert Mylander talks about, the per begotten, not made. Begotten, created through the gift of self, the intervention of God, versus production, made. And so if that is a valid distinction between those two terms. One, you can see that the child becomes something that's created with, I have made a man with the help of God, to quote Genesis, versus I have produced this child as an object of my desire through this technological process. It's valid to call it reproduction, but as Leon Koss, who I think some of y'all read his essay, says that the shift in language, where instead of talking about procreation, you normally hear reproduction now, or reproducing, uh, has this technocratic mindset and a desire to control. Also, the fact that it does normally happen in a lab, in a controlled scientific environment that comes through this sort of process that brings forth a new life. And this is what we're going to look at as that fundamental distinction. Well, the life that comes forth from the marital act and the life that comes forth through the production of in vitro fertilization, what, if, it, if you get the same product, if you're going to get an embryo that isn't sold, what is the difference in the choice that the couple makes. You have two, let's say you have two separate couples. One, both of them have a very valid desire to have a child. One engages in the natural form of the marital act in order to produce a child. The other pays the $50,000 and goes through the process of vitro fertilization and has the embryos uh, implanted into her uterus. What is the difference besides the fact that one comes as a result of the body's soul self-giving and the other takes place in a lab what is the fundamental difference i feel like for a reproduction it has like an economical entitlement to it which procreation does it which focuses more on doing things in a way that has a telos, even if the person doesn't realize it, right? Like they're using the act to do it as opposed to going in line with ultimate purpose of creating a life. Like the other one is just like give money, receive a good. No, there's certainly a consumeristic mentality. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that. But, but and we know the difference in the process. 
But what's the difference in the choice? Because you could say, well, what's the difference in a certain sense, the object of the act? What are you choosing, and how does that choice bear it out in reality? Well, one couple chose to have them to do the marital acts, have sex, and the other couple chose to have a baby. I mean, like the fundamental, like the couple that chose to have sex, they don't know if they're going to have a baby or not. I mean, they're they're open to life, but they're just having sex. Austin, batting a thousand today, baby. Look at that. Exactly. This is, this is exactly it. They both have the same desire, but one is choosing to have sex. There's no assurance that you're going to have a kid. You could you could be following your fertility chart all you want, but there's not a hundred percent assurance because you don't have complete control over whether or not that egg is fertilized all the signs could be lined up and for whatever reason conception doesn't take place but with this other process you have complete control of it you are choosing to make conception take place now granted when you insert the embryos into the the woman's body it may not take but the desire to bring forth a child one is a crapshoot the other you're making it happen and so, as we'll see, even though they on the surface both desire the same thing, there's a little difference in not only the choices they make, the actual act, the activity they get engaged in, but the style of the choice that they make. Does that make sense? So, so in a certain sense, you could make this further distinction that Mylander makes between doing versus making. Sex is doing. I'm doing something, an act of love, and children may or may not come from it. You may really want the child to come from it, but you don't always, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes you do it and you don't want a child to come from it, and it does. And so what we do is we receive the child as the gift. But here, in the lab, the child comes as a direct product of one's choice and intention. I am producing this child. It's not, nothing's left up to chance. Not only am I producing the chance, but it's so under control that I can choose to implant the embryo that I want. But there's no chance here. There's no doing. You are making. As I said, there's further control when we talk about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That what we're doing is this essential split which gosh is the real the real key we're going to look at we could talk about the different choices that you're making but we now have the ability to split procreation or life from coitus now they become almost two separate things we can choose to have sex just for pleasure i can choose to have no sex and bring forth life they become two separate entities that used to be so integrally enjoined. Mylander says, the more reproduction becomes separated from coitus, and the more we begin to pick and choose among possible children, the greater the responsibility we shoulder for the character of the next generation. Think about that. And this is something we'll look at more later. As we continue to exert control and the children become products of our own choices, not gifts, well then, further generations, what is our responsibility to them? What are they going to say? Well, why did you choose to do that? That's not fair. 
that's not good. That's not just. You've put this burden on me thinking about just your own self that you wanted to have a child without the impact this would have on further generations. There's also the question is if we see these children as products of our own technological intervention, do we risk seeing them as having less dignity than us? Because I brought you into existence. You're not a gift. On that lines of uh, impacting the future generation, so a couple of the speakers talked about how when artificial, con- artificial conception techniques, children's health tends to suffer more, more normally. Um, is there any study talking about the psychological effect on children's there any? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. Yes, I, I do know. There are some. I don't know the statistics of it. I remember learning this a little bit when I was in seminary from a professor. There are some differences. However, I don't know if they're so significant to warrant an argument that it's, from that perspective at least, you shouldn't do it. I do remember hearing that there was some study done of women who had had artificial IVF or artificial insemination and they would have dreams and invo- sexual dreams involving their doctors. I don't know about that, but that would be an interesting study. If you find something, let me know. But I would imagine there are things that are there. But then again, the question then becomes whether or not you can't avoid the physical or genetic impacts, but if the child doesn't know that it's a product of IVF, is there does the child somehow know on a, a subconscious level? It would have, I would imagine that those might come once the child is informed uh, because it is more of a psychological thing. Good question though. But this other question that is so important and one I guess we have a little time to discuss and Mylander brings up in a couple of the essays I didn't have you read. Let's say in the near future that IVF becomes the norm. Let's say but there's some rapid advances in technology where not only does it only cost maybe $2,000 to have IVF, but insurance pay for it, governments pay for it. In fact, in a certain sense, it becomes demanded. And we could talk about some of those ethical things. And it just becomes much more efficient, much easier, much less chance and risk. Regardless of those ethical problems, what becomes of sex? Remember in in Brave New World, where everybody was created in these artificial wounds, what became of sex? It's all about pleasure. It's all about pleasure. It's recreation. It's all about recreation. So we can make the argument that IVF and ARTs are immoral because of this whole distinction between procreation and reproduction. But is there a possibility of making a convincing argument in regards to the alteration that it has on our attitude or our approach towards coitus and marital love? Hmm? Yeah. It's not necessary. It, it, and, and not only is it not necessary from a biological perspective, because we have control over it, but also from that sacramental perspective. I mean, the sex act means something. 
And this ties back into our sexual ethics class. It's not just coitus. It is a sacramental expression of the total gift of self. It's the theology of the body. So what ends up happening is, is we attack the theology of the body. We attack the sacredness of sexuality by reducing it to something profane and just generally quotidian. But the fact is we can't do it because that meaning is inherent there by God. But yet this is something that we need to really consider from a philosophical perspective and a theological perspective. Well, well, if you challenge most people to say, I, I want to challenge IVF not according to all the customary arguments, but according to the shift in the meaning of the marital act that it brings about, how do you think people respond to that argument? Assuming that you were coherent in making your argument. I, I don't know. It's something to reflect on, but it's a very, very valid point. So I, I want to make and sort of land the plane gradually with a few further considerations. These are all stuff that we've maybe discussed or we haven't really, or only like incidentally. The first is the impact of these processes on our generations. This is something that Gil Mylander talks about a lot. That the bond between parents and children are important. Not just the psychological, but the genetic bond. He says for three reasons. One, we are embodied creatures and we occupy a fixed place in human generations. How many of y'all ever do your genealogy or family tree? You've, you occupy a fixed place. And we learn to give thanks for our grandparents and our great-grandparents. If any of you ever done any of the genealogy or the ancestry, it is really, really fascinating. Number two, the child is a yes to the loving gift of parents. And so yes, the, the parents give love, the child is that yes that, that reaffirms the generation that came before. Not a product, but a fruit of the act of love and that close connection between man and woman in the act of love. So the problem comes in if you have a third party donor or surrogate, not via IVF period, but you bring a third party donor or surrogate, or you decide to somehow create a being by taking somatic cells and turning them into gametes and then fertilizing that egg those lines of generation become very, very blurred. Very, very blurred. Now you could say, well, adoption does too. No, it doesn't. Adoption just grafts something on. Here, you're blurring the line of generations. So how, what does that look like? You insert that into that type of, into the family tree. What does it look like for generations to come? And what does that impact? Because I think that's when we get into consequentialism. How can you truly know, again, I'm not for consequentialism, how can you truly know the consequences of your actions? How can you weigh it out for all the further generations, particularly something like that? The second point is generally when we make the argument on ARTs, IVF, we say the ends don't justify the means. The ends are the parents, 
rarely do I think are people choosing this because they have some big nefarious plot to ruin, you know, the, gen- the, the genetic construct of the generation. Most people choose this for very legitimate reasons. The desire to have a child, the desire to overcome the cross of infertility. And yes, indeed, the desire for child is a laudable thing. We want our love to be fruitful. And so we say that the means are not acceptable, but the question is, are the ends, the reason and the desire you want the child for, or that very fact that you want the child and are willing to have recourse to IVF, is that valid? And in the, the, the essay I put in there by Martin Ronheimer, which I think is really in, interesting, and he gets into fleshes it out, his attack or his argument is not about the process, but about the intention. That yes, it's easy for us to say, oh, they want the good thing, therefore, even though they're choosing something that's objectively morally evil, their culpability may be lessened, without a doubt. But the fact is, he makes this distinction between desire versus intention, as, as Austin brought up. Both couples have a desire for a new child, but the one who chooses IVF has an intention to bring forth a child, while the other chooses the marital act and that child may or may not come from it. And he gets into all these different distinctions that we say, I desire a child, and we say, I desire a vacation. Well, if I want a vacation, I will take the nat- There's, I can play the lotto and maybe get a vacation, or I can, I can get the raffle and maybe get a vacation, but normally we desire a vacation. I want it, I will choose it, I will get it. But here, I desire a child, the most you're really saying is, I hope to have a child through the process of this marital act. So in IVF ARTs, the child becomes the product of a causative will. Your choice is the cause that brings forth that child. So how does that impact our understanding of the goodness of the being of the child? Number three. The concept of freedom, particularly when it comes to reproductive rights, which I know we talked a bit about in sexual ethics. In Sneed's book, he brings up this John Robertson who gave us the concept and law of procreative liberty, that this fundamental right that we have or women have to bring forth life, that there should be, like abortion, no limits. It's a fundamental right. And that's why, which is interesting, and I think Dr. Cuddy, he said, there are really no laws, federal laws governing artificial reproductive technologies. It's a, it's a wild west out there, just as they're trying to reduce laws for abortion. So it basically becomes, we're not going to regulate that. Your desire to bring forth a child, regardless of any ethical implications, they do not trump your freedom as autonomy to choose to get a child by any means necessary. And so he says that this reveals, of course, the anthropology of expressive individualism. I think this child would enhance my life. I want this child even for a good reason. I have the right to pay the money 
consumer market out there to bring forth the child. The decisions are never judged in regards to the child and its rights. It tends to be satisfying the goals of the parents. Now, I'm not condemning parents who have a legitimate desire and who choose this, but the choices do reflect often a different concept of freedom. There's one as, an ex as a result of expressive individualism, but even more, you are making a different type of choice that reveals a different weight to your intention. So we're struggling right now to convince people that infants in the womb have a right to life. How do you even begin to convince people that children not even conceived who don't even exist yet have a right? I have no idea. I mean, I don't. So this is the thing. This is what I want to get to. This has been our big argument. We can understand these things, but particularly now for, what, 40, 50 years, no one preaches on this. Um, and again, even talking about this, I upload the homily. Someone could hear it and say, Father's attacking all the parents who've ever had IVF. No, I'm not attacking you at all. It's like I'm not attacking the person who chose to, to have an abortion. We're talking about the acts themselves, your culpability for it <clears throat> or how you'll deal with it is a separate issue. But, but let me get to the end, and if we have time, I want to discuss that. Like, how do we? How do we present this to people in our preaching, but also in our one-on-one -on -one to help them understand the truth? But this is something that's very interesting in an article that I read by a guy named Stefan Kampowski. Kampowski, I think I put the link on the page. He says that these artificial reproductive technologies, as they have grown over the course of the past, let's say, 40 years, and have become more accepted, people don't really question whether or not they're right or wrong, our ability to control when we come into the world, does it indeed impact our understanding of control when we go out of the world? So he says, finally, if we program the beginning of human life, if ART replaces nature and technology replaces chance at the moment we come to be, why then should we, as enlightened, autonomous, and responsible agents, leave the moment of our passing to the chance of nature? If the beginning is programmed, why not always program the end? Also program the end. The logic of art is, ART, human life is something human beings need to dominate. The promising result of this logic would then not only be a good birth, but also a good death. Thus, to my mind, the logic of ART is spelled out to the end. It leads to a widespread acceptance of euthanasia. If what governs people's entry into life is a desire achieved by human programming, why should that same desire not also govern people's exit from this life?" Unquote. Interesting to think about. And I don't know if you can make a correlation with the, the rise of ARTs and the control over fertility, <clears throat> starting with the pill and on and on on. And I'm not saying that it should be completely up to chance. There is responsible parenthood. We've talked about that. Can we see a correlation in the rise of acceptance of euthanasia? Now we're going to really control the way we go out. And it gets accepted more and more in different uh, parts of the world. But there is, besides questions of, uh, of social justice, um, of consumerism, because we've talked about already, this technology, at least for now, is only for the rich and famous. 
or primarily for the rich and famous. Um, and as, particularly as we look at more of those details. But, but there's one factor when we talk about technology, birth, life, control, programming, there's one factor that we have not really discussed yet, and which I would figure y'all would think is very interesting to discuss. Technology, programming, control, domination. What are those words often to people today on a other level bring to mind? Dictatorship. Dictatorship, government. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting. This is where Brave New World comes in. I read an essay on the anniversary of Brave New World. I may have actually posted it. It was in the 75th anniversary of Brave New World. Well, you know the basic premise where sex is separated from procreation. Everybody's just going to have sex. And this guy who actually was born from a normal way comes into the world where the world control, the world controller's council <coughs> is, 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 is forcing this to happen. So this idea, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Some of you may be, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. They're not judging. We're not here to judge QAnon. Don't don't post that on on Facebook. Um, that this idea that we're making these individual choices without the government seeing this or other larger entities, whether it be governments or potentially even corporations, that we shouldn't ask that question. Because Brave New World is not about reproductive technologies. People thought that was crazy when it was first written. It was about governmental control. So the other, even though a lot of people put it in the same context of H.G. Wells, it was really more, or Jules Verne, it was really more in the context of Orwell in 1984. It's about governmental control and dictatorship and fascism. So this is the question of the, and listen, we live in an administrative state where technique and bureaucracy controls everything. This is the Jacques the technological uh, state, the technological society, which then impacts our further, our, our question of what freedom is. Ratzinger says, the freedom which emancipates man and his research from ethics thus presupposes, as it exceptions, the denial of freedom. What remains is the power of the World Controller's Council, a technical rationality which itself stands only to service to necessity, but wants to replace the accidental occurrences of its combinations with a logical planning. So I could probably put that. So it seems there's an autonomous freedom the individual chooses, but as you gain more and more control, you end up sort of ceding it over to the government, and it lends to more planning, more manipulation, and less chance, and less freedom to choose certain things. Because the question that I've always brought up, what if, and we'll talk about it again, what if there comes a point in time where because of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or in vitro fertilization, that like in Iceland, I think, Down syndrome has been eradicated from Iceland, where we want to have a eugenic project, and eugenics, as we'll see, is always a very legitimate concern, and not that we want to deliberately bring 
people into the world that are going to have disabilities and are unhealthy, but we leave, we leave a lot of it to chance. What if it becomes a problem to knowingly give birth to a defective child? What if the government says, we've got so much control here and we're controlling the insurance and the health. If you bring forth a defective child because we have so much control over it, if a child is born to you, has Down syndrome, and you didn't abort it, we're not providing insurance. We're not providing the help. What do you do? Huh? Figure it out. Yeah, I know, but this, uh, these, are legit, these are things that you do, but this is what could potentially come to be. Now, granted, I'm not trying to scare everybody, but it's something that we need to, I think, at least consider. The, 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 the greater social ramifications, not only from a social justice perspective, but also from uh, governmental control and that respect between genuine freedom and autonomy and uh, the rule of law. And, and before we get to the conclusion, you know, how to preach and change people's minds in this? So I don't know, because we can give the gloom and doom scenario I can talk about the brave new world comes to being, and I can talk about um, all these, these different things that are terrible about the dignity of the human person that comes through IVF. But the counter argument is we've been doing it for 40 years and it doesn't look like these people are walking around like zombies. It doesn't look like things are exploding. I mean, we could say things are exploding, but there are other reasons why. Just like when all the gloom and doom, if you allow gay marriage, the world's gonna come to an end. Did it? Eh, not really, not really. Now we can make certain moral arguments, but I'm talking about arguments that are gonna be convincing to people. The world and the economy seems to just go on like it normally does. And I can tell you like as a priest <clears throat> from, from like contraception, I can make some pretty strong, powerful arguments and I've changed people's minds but the fact of the matter is, as much as people may be convinced of certain actions, rightness, wrongness in their minds, convenience and the desire to get what they want when they want because of that consumeristic mentality will almost over, always override it. I know this may not be right, the church may condemn this, but I hate my infertility, so I'm going to choose this. And I'll live with the repercussions. So what do y'all think? I mean, how do you think you y'all are the next generation of priests besides the fact that maybe we should just talk about it in public sometimes uh or from the pulpit how do you think you're going to would convince people how do you let's just how do you think we're going to convince catholics Avatar, you can't name the names of any of the characters, but it's one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Um, but they go in, they want the product on Pandora, right? And it takes him going out and seeing the beauty of the culture, the beauty of what's there to change his mind, right? So I think in, in context of Catholicism, you have to have the patience to reveal the beauty of the Catholic worldview, of what we have to say, why we say it. And hopefully over time that transitions into that person seeing it as well and then living according to it. So that always say, Arguments are important, but ultimately they have to see why the arguments are there. Mm -hmm. And then once you start from the ground up, they then speak as the church does, see as the church does, and live their lives accordingly. Mm -hmm. But that takes a long time. Mm -hmm. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of effort mm -hmm. on the part of the theologian or the priest. Mm -hmm. 
Any other ideas? Doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. I like it. I like it because it's not so far off. Like we read these 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 novels and different things and these stories and we watch these TV shows. People are fascinated with like a post-apocalyptic kind of a society chaotic thing. They're fascinated with it. But um, but do they realize that we're really not that far away uh, from like the genetic testing that we're doing on the embryos and we're throwing some in the trash can and we're letting some have the potential to live. Like, I mean, this is happening today. This isn't, like, going to happen in five years, ten years. True. I mean, I, yeah. I I don't know if that would – and looking at we've shown people, these are aborted fetuses. This is really bad. I still want my abortion. You know, the unit of procreative means the marital act. I still want my contraception. It really is hard to convince. Um, Ratzinger's argument, as I put a quote here, I won't read you the whole thing, is to, to juxtapose the mechanical versus the personal or the technological versus the personal. This is two different mindsets here. And not only in the critique of the technological mindset, but enhancing the personal, he also talks about achieving a synthesis of wisdom in science where we're not rejecting technology, but we're using our human wisdom, which comes from human experience. But as I kind of brought up in class the other day, you know, the, the age of discussion, sitting and talking about this is great. And maybe some people will love to listen to this podcast and will change their minds, but it's the age of sentiments. How can we use story, narrative, whatnot, to be able to, if not change people's minds now, to help them understand from a younger age about the dignity of the human person so that when they get older, they have the necessary tools to understand this is not a good thing. And I think potentially that's why Brave New World still speaks to people today, uh, 75 years after its publication. No, I, I think that may very well. What, what does that rock bottom look like? I don't know. I don't want to think about what it looks like. Austin obviously knows what it, think, what it looks like. Oh, yeah. yeah, but it, it, these are things to consider, um, the ramifications. But I've seen it in my own life. I think you're right. When I talked about the age of sentiments, I'm not saying that we need to resort to appeals to emotion, even though you can appeal to emotion and then bring people into reason and to explain things. But 
what is the most powerful image? It's going to be of a good family who struggles with the trials and, and whatnot, um, who maybe then adopts children um, because they were infertile and they adopted some children from some poor country. Those types of witnesses uh, become very powerful and can be very convincing to open up the mind of the heart to then uh, accept, accept the church's teaching and the deeper teaching on the human person, the meaning of sex and sexuality. So what we're going to do for, uh, my plan is, so for the midterm, I thank y'all for being good with me with that, we'll be back on Ash Wednesday. No, we're going to be back on uh, Thursday, correct? Yeah. We have Thursday this week, then Thursday of next week. After that Thursday, I should have the exam for y'all. You'll have all weekend to, to finish it until we come back on Tuesday. You can just do it online. I'll hopefully figure out how to do it. But the next several classes will be me, where we're going to be sort of picking apart different issues in regards to procreation that we have not discussed yet, um, <clears throat> that deal with procreation, uh, pregnancy, birth, abortion, uh, sort of rounding out this whole, this whole cycle. Uh, so again, that's why I thought it was important for me to give this class now so that we can have the principles that will apply. So I think the other classes, I really want to tell you, I know I gave you a lot of the reading, I'm going to add some more of the reading later, to do the reading so that we can have more of a discussion since we've already kind of elucidated the, the basic points. Any questions or comments? All right, well, we will see you then on Thursday.